This is They Create Worlds, episode 139, Tech Toy and Brazil. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. That was a wonderful cruise we've been on for the last couple weeks there, Alex. But now, here we are in the glorious, wondrous land of South America, and specifically, Brazil. Wait, should we be going on cruises during a global pandemic? This is a fictitious cruise of our mind here. Oh, good. Imagine going on this cruise to Brazil in order to do this elaborate intro (laughs) that you just torpedoed with the glorious horror that is our last year. Well, you know, it happens. I guess so. (laughs) Take us on our voyage of the mind. Our mind forever voyaging, one might say. That's true. Since our minds are now just little brains with appendages, eyes, mouth, and little feet pluttering off of our imaginary boat into Brazil, where you will look around wondrously and go, this is such a great place. And look at that technology over there and those toys over there. You know what we should talk about? Sega! No, not Sega. (laughs) Tech toys in Brazil. Well, yes. We will, of course, today be talking primarily about the most interesting uh, video game company, though certainly not the only one, in Brazil, that company being Tech Toy, which was for many years and still is the official partner of Sega in the country. As a matter of fact, ever since Tech Toy first introduced the Master System in Brazil, there has been some form of Sega Master System on Brazilian shelves to this present day. So you're telling me I can go down to Brazil right now, somehow avoiding all the pandemic stuff, walk into a store and say, hey, oh, merchant, give me a Sega Master System. Yes, yes, you can. Now, some people like to say that it's the longest continuously in production console. That's not actually quite true because what you get today, just like when you get an NES Classic or an Atari flashback, is something that's emulated. It's not the original hardware, and then there's a lot of built-in games in it. You're not still buying the cartridges separately. Still, something like that has been in continuous production, even when here in the United States we have our nostalgia systems, like the NES Classic or the Atari flashback. There were still many periods of years where something masquerading as an Atari VCS or a Nintendo Entertainment System was not being actively manufactured and sold. In Brazil, ever since the introduction of that master system, it has never stopped. The Genesis, almost for as long, they did finally discontinue their Genesis products. I don't know if they have one out right now, but even if they have one out right now, there was definitely a gap where they didn't. Really, the master system reigns supreme down in Brazil, but it has been continuously available in some form or another, thanks to the subject of today's episode, Tech Toy. That's pretty impressive speaks to the testament of how much people really, really like the master system down there. I certainly don't know much about the culture of Brazil and the video game industry there. How were video games as we know it brought to Brazil? Absolutely. There are a couple of things that make Brazil not strictly unique, but very different from a lot of the markets where video games have been. First of all, Brazil, it is the largest country in South America. It's huge. It stands a little apart in some ways from its fellow South American countries, only in the sense that it was a Portuguese colony, while everything else used to be Spanish colonies. So they speak Portuguese there primarily and are of Portuguese descent rather than of Spanish descent. I certainly don't claim to be any kind of expert on Brazilian history, so I'm not going to try to do anything deep there, and even the shallow stuff I do may end up leaving our Brazilian listeners, which I believe we have at least one or two of, shaking their heads in utter disgust. But for our story, the important thing is that by the late 1970s, by the 1970s, Brazil had been subjected to military rule for quite some time. 
the country had been, quite frankly, mismanaged by the military government. By the end of the 70s, beginning of the 1980s, you had a situation where the economy was in absolutely dire straits, and they had to accept bailouts from the International Monetary Fund in order to stop the country from completely and utterly collapsing. As a result of this, there were certain economic targets that they were required to hit as part of receiving this IMF bailout. This caused them, the military government at the time, to enact some very protectionist laws that were meant to encourage local industry and local production. One of the key laws here that is going to be very crucial to the story that we're going to tell The law was passed in 1984, but I think it was unofficial policy even before that, was that any company that wanted to do business in Brazil had to be majority Brazilian owned. So it's very similar to the same situation you find in China today. All of the companies like Activision with World of Warcraft and Call of Duty When they have these big games, they have to find someone local to partner with to localize them in China because the Chinese want Chinese ownership, Chinese companies operating in China. Brazil was very much the same way. Even before they had this law, because of the economic development that they wanted to see within Brazil itself, they put very strict limits on who could import stuff, who could manufacture stuff from other parts of the world, and really tried to encourage the development of local industry. What this meant is that if you wanted to bring a video game, even in the 70s, even before this other law passed, if you wanted to bring a video game into Brazil, you had to have a local partner. You couldn't just set up a two-person office in a major city and then work with the local distributors to arrange import of your goods that you're manufacturing in the United States or Mexico or Europe or wherever you are. You actually need a company on the ground doing the work. Obviously, we're not too tech toy in our narrative yet, despite them being the star today, but that's a big part of why you have, that's really the whole part of why you have this Sega tech toy relationship. Sega could not just establish Sega of Brazil, like they established Sega of America, manufacture all the consoles in Japan, and then ship them over to the Americas like they do in North America to actually sell them. There has to be a company on the ground doing that. The other thing about this period is that Brazil does undergo rapid, rapid inflation, very bad inflation in this period, partially as a result of that enters into a very bad recession as well. When we talk about the Brazilian market and we talk about things doing well in the Brazilian market, you're talking about a market that throughout the time period we're talking about, which is the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Hit products are measured in the tens or hundreds of thousands of units, not in the millions of units. Even though Brazil is a large country with a large population, there's really only a small portion of the population that can afford to be involved in this. One of Tech Toys' claims to fame is that they triumphed over Nintendo in Brazil, which is not something that can be said in a lot of worldwide markets during this time period that we're talking about, the 80s and early 90s. That's a wonderful achievement, but we have to remember that even in triumphing over Nintendo, We're talking about selling hundreds of thousands of units of their systems. We're not talking about selling millions. We're talking about selling maybe four or five or six cartridges per system. But we're not talking about games then that can go on and sell millions and millions of units. It was not a great solace to Sega to defeat Nintendo in Brazil because there really wasn't that much at stake at the end of the day. In effect, you're saying that even though Brazil is a large country with a large indigenous population, the penetration of video games into that population is still very, very small because of these various import restrictions, probably tariffs and all sorts of other things. Only the rich, people who are affluent, are able to really purchase and procure video games because if the entire country is in recession being propped up by the International Monetary Fund, that 
just speaks volumes as to the amount of discretionary income the average household had is next to zero. They're probably just struggling to put dinner on the table, have a home, and meet daily needs. Right. As I say, I'm I'm not an expert on Brazil, so I don't want to go too far in trying to claim I know how the people were living at the time, but it's definitely true that this would be something that only people a little better off, probably not only the ultra-rich, but certainly probably you're only talking about the rich and kind of the urban middle class or upper middle class, particularly concentrated in the two big cities of Brazil, Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. That's the market we're looking at, but just because it's smaller than the United States or Japan or England doesn't mean it isn't an interesting market. Because as we will see in this episode, they really do have a fascinating video game history all of their own. And it is worth delving into a little bit, even though it's a little bit of a smaller market. One thing that I find really fascinating about this entire thing is you actually stumbled last minute upon a book written in Portuguese from an author in Brazil. You spent probably the last few days here translating it, trying to absorb all of this information. This is just a wonderful source, really adding some spice and flavor to this episode. Absolutely. So there is a gentleman in Brazil that has written a book. He actually wrote a couple of books, and then he revised them and combined them into one book. This gentleman is named Marcus Chiado. Hopefully I'm not butchering the pronunciation. Marcus wrote a really in-depth book covering the beginning of the video game industry in Brazil. The original one was called 1983. The second one was called 1984 because they really were focused kind of around what was going on in, in just that small time frame. Then he did a revised version where he combined them together. He also then did a documentary as well. After he wrote the two books, he did a documentary where he interviewed a ton of people, everything from engineers to marketers to company CEOs that were involved in the Brazilian video game industry obviously also in Portuguese. Then after that, he did the revised version where he combined the two books together, and he also included some quotes from the documentary in there in the revised edition, so that was nice as well. So there's actually a wonderful resource, and yes, I did just discover it a few days ago, and I've been frantically machine translating it using DeepL. Machine translation is still not perfect, but it has made uh, surprising strides in the last few years, and you can actually get a lot I've relied a lot on machine translation for my work in general, and certainly have here. As you can tell, since there's a whole 150-page book on it, we could do a whole episode just on the very early days of the Brazilian industry, and we might do that someday. That might be fun. But for the moment, I'm just going to give the briefest of summaries of that. Well, you know, brief for us. (laughs) Probably be five hours long, but... (laughs) Not going to get into all the nitty-gritty details, but we'll give a little bit of that overview before we get into Tech Toy. In the early days, the Brazilians saw many of the same things that we saw. They had to do partnerships with local companies to get them, as I said, but their trajectory was very similar to ours. The very first system that they had was the Magnavox Odyssey, the original Odyssey. It was done by a company called Planil Comercio e Industria Electronica. My apologies again for any horrible pronunciation. A local company that dealt mostly in stereos and televisions and that kind of thing. Once the Magnavox Odyssey went international, which it did after its first couple of years, Planil got in on this and released the system in 1975. Because, like I said, there had to be a partnership I think this one was authorized. As far as I know, this was authorized. They got some of the components from Magnavox in the United States, and then they produced the box for the system, the manual for the system, in Portuguese, obviously, and some of the parts for the system locally in Brazil. They released it for the Christmas 1975 season, so it came out in 72 in the U.S. Internationally, it was test marketed in Germany in 73, didn't start being widely distributed outside the U.S. until 1974, and then they're getting in in 75. So that's a little late in the system's history. It was discontinued in 75 in the United States, but that's about right on schedule in terms of how that system was slowly being exported globally. 
it didn't do much. They had very few of them. It was very expensive. For instance, one of the department stores allowed you to buy it on an installment plan for 30 low, low payments. I don't know what the payments were, but the fact that there are 30 of them (laughs) tells you that... (laughs) Probably something very expensive. Right. And of course, because they were having inflationary pressure, the money was changing all the time, so it's hard to do a correlation. But yeah, it was expensive, and so it really didn't do very much. Then after that, just like we got in the United States, they got the Pong-on-a-chip systems. Because that is something that's very easy to do locally because, of course, you had companies like General Instrument and National Semiconductor that were just making these chips that could play Pong and play a few other games or whatever. It was already up to local companies to just come up with their own thing around the chip, but the chip's the hard part. The chip has all the gameplay. Locally, you just need to come up with a case and you need to come up with controls and you need to make sure it plays nice with the television. The heavy lifting of creating the game was entirely done by General Instrument or whoever else you're getting that microchip from. Philco, which was an important American electronics company that had been purchased by Ford, so it was owned by Ford, Ford Philco, they had a large presence in Brazil. They had a Brazilian subsidiary. So they produced one of these Pong-on-a-chip games in 1977 called the Teleyogo. The book doesn't say, but I'm guessing was based on the General Instrument chip because it seems to play the games that the General Instrument chip would play. Uh, It played the tennis and soccer and handball kind of games that were pretty standard. So that saw release in 1977. It did well enough that they released a follow-up, the Teleyogo 2, in 1979. Again, we're talking about a little past the U.S. market, which is typical of parts of the developing world in this period. If a video game concept hits the United States in a certain year, then you're probably looking at two to three years later, that concept gaining traction in other parts of the world, developing world. By 77, the U.S. market for these dedicated systems was peaking and starting to collapse, whereas in 1977, it's just getting started in Brazil. There were a couple of other kits put out by smaller companies, generally, which you had to do some assembly yourself. They were electronic kits instead of fully completed systems. There were a small number of games in this early, early time period. Really doesn't start getting going, though, until the 1980s, the early 1980s. That's when the video game thing really gets together. The reason for this is because of the recessionary forces going on in the country and because of the inflationary forces, makers of traditional electronics in the country were in some trouble. Traditional electronics in this case primarily means stereos and televisions. These are big, expensive consumer electronics products that are going to become a harder and harder sell in a recession and with inflation out of control. These companies need something else, something new and exciting and something that is probably slightly cheaper. Even though video games are expensive, they're not necessarily as expensive as a hi-fi stereo component. But even if they can't get the price down for whatever reason, at least it's something new and exciting. It's something that they may have a chance to convince the public that they want to buy just because it's a new shiny. There was a lot of interest in Brazil in the early 1980s and amongst these companies, big and small, to get involved in this business. There were two ways you could go about this. We talked about the one already. If a company from outside Brazil wanted to do business in Brazil, they basically had to go with a Brazilian company. This was true even before 1984 when that became officially codified into law. You could find an American company like an Atari or something that may be interested in bringing their product to your country, and then you can try to work out a deal with them to do so. The other thing that you can do is you can quite simply smuggle components in, build them yourself, and market them in the country. Not illegally within the country. I mean, it would be considered illegal in, say, the United States. But this wasn't strictly illegal in Brazil because they really wanted to promote local manufacturing and local business. Brazil was not too keen on upholding the intellectual property rights of outside entities, similar in that way to to how China developed as well. You might register a trademark 
in Brazil and be able to operate under that trademark in Brazil, even though that trademark is owned by somebody else in another part of the world. They also passed laws that cut off royalties to companies in countries outside Brazil. If you're using a company's intellectual property, even if you're using like their games that they made, for instance, not just the systems, but the actual games, under Brazilian law, you did not have to send royalties back to the original IP holder for the privilege. Now, if you were playing nice with one of these companies and working with them directly, I'm sure you still paid the royalties because that's how you get the relationship. But you didn't have to. The Brazilian government would shield you. There was kind of the legal way and the gray way, the gray market way. The legal way still had certain advantages to it. The larger companies in Brazil tended to do it the legal way. It does guarantee that you're getting everything perfectly right in the top quality and you're getting some support from the parent company. You can justify some of that expense and whatnot because then you have much better distribution and you can spend more on advertising because you're a big company. So the big companies, the respectable companies, tended to go the partnership route. But smaller concerns would do it the gray market way instead, in which they would get the supplies kind of on the sly and then build locally without any regards to intellectual property holders. Occasionally, these paths would cross where somebody that started out illegitimate becomes legitimate. An example of that, and it's an example that will actually be relevant to our story, which is why I'm going to get into that, is Sharp of Brazil. The Japanese electronics company Sharp had a Brazilian subsidiary, but it didn't start as a subsidiary of the Japanese company. A local entrepreneur decided to call his company Sharp, hmm. like the Japanese company, and decided to do gray market production and, and selling of Sharp products in Brazil using that Sharp trademark. But then later on, when Sharp decided they wanted to come in, they just made an arrangement with the entrepreneur and Sharp Brazil became part of the Sharp family with the Japanese company. But it didn't start that way. There's a lot of this weirdness. Early in the VCS's life, earlier in its life, in the like 80 or 81, maybe 82 time period, there was a trickle of Atari product coming in to Brazil, but none of it was official. What they would do is most of the components were off-the-shelf components. There were a couple of custom chips in there, but what they would do is they would make backdoor deals with some of Atari's suppliers, service organizations. I mean, it wasn't like they went directly to the chip company, which wouldn't have wanted to endanger. But if they had arrangements with like servicing companies or there are other people within the supply chain that may need to have a stock of Atari chips on hand, the companies in Brazil would make backdoor deals with these companies to siphon off some of their supply and import the chips they needed into Brazil and then do the PC board manufacturing and the case manufacturing and all of that other stuff locally in the country, and then release Atari product, particularly the games. So there was actually a company that in 1980, in April 1980, introduced the VCS into Brazil. This company went by the name Atari Electronica, but they had no right to the Atari name. They had no license with Atari. They just did this backdoor importing of chips and then assembled product and then sold it locally using Atari's own name, which they had no rights to. But there's nothing Atari could do about it. <laughs> kind of amazing. Does this situation still go on now? I don't know enough about the modern Brazilian market to say for sure. I know that there is still a lot of piracy in that market. So, yeah, I think it does go on to a degree. I really don't know enough about the market to be able to say maybe some of our listeners from that part of the world can uh, leave us comments or feedback on that because it's uh, an excellent question. I know piracy is still a big deal down there. I mean, obviously, just like in the rest of the developing world, a lot of internet-based stuff and a lot of mobile stuff is what the bread and butter is now, precisely because it's not so easy to pirate or, or smuggle an always online game or a mobile game as it is some of this other stuff. 
it's always been a market that's been dominated more by piracy than by legitimate product, which, to bring it back around, makes tech toys success in the 80s and early 90s with Sega product all the more remarkable because it wasn't pirated. It was official. They were able to still do a pretty good job in the market. And we'll go into, of course, some of why that is when we finally get there. That's kind of the situation until 1983. In 1983, you finally start to see some official consoles coming onto the market. They get just about all the players that you find in the United States as well. Atari finally gets there on an official basis. They partner with a Brazilian company called Gradiente, which is primarily a stereo company. It's a consumer electronics company. They partner with Gradiente to release the VCS to manufacture locally and then release the VCS in Brazil. This other company I mentioned, Atari Electronica, now they have a bit of a problem because there is an official partner of Atari around now. So Gradiente, which is a much larger concern, it's a major Brazil company, can definitely exert some pressure on them. So they actually come to an agreement. Gradiente says, okay, guys, this whole creating an Atari-branded console, we really can't let you do that anymore. But we're only able to get a small number of the total available games. Because remember, by 1983, there are hundreds of Atari VCS games. We're only able to get a small number of the Atari VCS games into the market with our production capability. If you want to keep creating games for Atari systems, remember, when we say creating games, what we mean is they're pirating Atari and Activision and all of these other games. They're smuggling them. This isn't like they're creating their own unique properties. They're getting the stuff not just from Atari, but from Activision and all the other companies as well. If you want to keep putting games out, that's fine. Use the Atari name on that. Be happy. Bring in all the games you want. So they kind of reach an understanding. There are a couple of other companies that continue to do gray market Atari systems. Clearly, at this point, the leader is Gradiente. Atari takes some steps to try to help Gradiente be more successful. They do manage to cut off some of the supply of these chips into Brazil. They do some sting operations with their suppliers and figure out who's kind of dealing. And they clamp down on that a little. Gradiente also did some legal work within Brazil, and Atari lent them some lawyers and whatnot to try to do some legal action in Brazil as well. By 1983, Gradiente, even though there's a couple of other stuff going on, they're official and they are Atari. Sharp, which I told you about before, this is Sharp as in associated with Sharp Japan, but they didn't start associated with Sharp Japan. Sharp was also interested in the Atari system, couldn't get it. So they turned around and went to Mattel and negotiated for the Intellivision. Sharp releases the Intellivision in 1983 in Brazil. Remember, 83 is when the North American market is falling apart. You might have heard us do one, two, or 20 episodes on that. This is when the market is just getting going in Brazil. Even though there's been some great market stuff before 83, it's kind of small potatoes. I don't know. I think Atari should have just taken all those things in inventory in warehouses in America and just ship them down to Brazil and say, hey, kids, have fun. (laughs) Ah, Wouldn't that be nice? But of course, as we said, you know, this is a market that is sadly not measured in the numbers of the millions of cartridges that were being stranded in North America. I don't know this officially, but I'm sure because they had the official relationship with Gradiente, I'm sure they did try as much as possible to ship some of that product down there. So Sharp had the Intellivision. Another company that got involved in the same time period around 1983 was Philips. Philips, being a large multinational conglomerate, did have a Philips Brazil branch. Again, I I don't know all the details. I'm sure it was kind of like the Sharp company was probably kind of a separately owned to meet the requirements, but it was essentially part of the Philips umbrella. Philips, which of course had purchased Magnavox by this point, did have a presence in Brazil, so they decided to release the Odyssey 2. Because the Odyssey had never been released by Philips in Brazil, remember there was a very small run of it, but done by another company. Because the Odyssey 1 had never really been officially introduced in Brazil, 
they did not call the Odyssey 2 the Odyssey 2. They just called it the Odyssey. So when we refer to the Magnavox Odyssey in Brazil in this time period, we are referring to the Odyssey 2, just to make things confusing for y'all. Already with this gray market stuff, it wasn't confusing enough. (laughs) Right. Finally, there's the ColecoVision. The ColecoVision did not get officially released in Brazil. CBS did have the international rights to the system. Coleco gave CBS rights to release it outside of the United States. CBS tried to see if they could find a partner to work with, because again, CBS couldn't just ship them in. They had to have a local partner. A lot of these negotiations were very fraught. We didn't really talk about this, but because the country was a little unstable economically, all of these American and Japanese companies were a little skittish about dealing in this market. So it wasn't just a matter of finding someone who'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll do this with you. That sounds like fun. You had to have a certain level of confidence that things were going to work out. And these companies quite simply didn't often have confidence. It took a lot of convincing, to my understanding, for Gradiente to get that Atari license, for instance. CBS didn't find anyone that they wanted to partner with in Brazil. That doesn't mean that the ColecoVision did not appear in Brazil. Because as we said, there are two ways to do things, the legal way and the gray way. There was a company that released the ColecoVision, but of course they couldn't call it the ColecoVision. Well, I mean, I suppose they could have tried to, right? Just like that other company tried to call their unofficial Atari system an Atari system. But they didn't call it that. A manufacturer of telecommunication products decided to create the system, and they marketed through a subsidiary of theirs called Splice. Because the subsidiary was called Splice, the ColecoVision in Brazil was called the Splice Vision. Kind of funny name to me for a console. (laughs) I guess we're just taking both visions and splicing them together into an amalgamation of video and game? Right. To recap, you kind of have four players with a couple of smaller players that we didn't get into. If we ever do an 80s Brazil console episode, we can get more into that. You have Gradiente, which is doing the VCS through its Polyvox brand. The reason they're doing that is they're not certain that this market's going to exist either. And so they didn't want to risk the Gradiente name, which is a big, high-quality name on this. So they released it through their Polyvox label. You have Sharp doing the Intellivision. You have Philips in Brazil doing the Odyssey, which is actually the Odyssey 2. And you have Splice Vision, because why not? Because ColecoVision was too complicated. And it turns out that these systems really are a hit in 1983. The country experiences video game fever. Now, remember, the numbers are still small. When we say that they were an incredible hit, it's in terms of what the Brazilian market could bear. but. In this year of recession and inflation, there was a reported 20% drop in almost all types of items during the Christmas season. Toys, electronics, whatever else. Televisions and stereos. Whereas video games just surged and the, the local papers basically credited them with saving Christmas. As I said, the numbers were still small, but there were probably about 180,000 consoles sold and about 500,000 cartridges. That's across everything that was available. Those were the estimates at the time. Atari, Gradiente, Polyvox, was far and away the market leader. They took about 70% of the market, very similar to the market share, really, that Atari had in the United States. The big loser was Splice Vision. Part of the reason that CBS couldn't find anyone satisfactory to partner with is that the ColecoVision, being a more advanced console than the VCS or even the Intellivision, was also a commensurately more expensive product. So because it was expensive, it was a really hard sell in the Brazilian markets. Splice Vision doesn't do much. Philips does okay. I think they do better in Brazil than they did in the United States. Again, we're talking in percentage of the market, not in terms of overall sales, because the market's so small, even a successful Odyssey 2 in Brazil is not going to sell as many units as a less successful Odyssey 2 in the United States, then Atari has the majority of that. In 1984, video games are even bigger. So the two worst years in the United States 
are the two best years by far to date in Brazil. But again, we're talking small numbers. So in 1984, roughly 250,000 consoles were sold. This was actually below market demand. This was all that the manufacturers could get out. The market almost doubled and would have done even better if they could have reached market demand. Again, we have some figures. Polyvox, that's uh, Gradiente's label, that's the Atari, sold 120,000 VCS systems. Philips came in second place with 45,000 units. So again, the Atari product dominated. But Philips had a larger share of the market in Brazil than they ever had in the United States, even if, again, it meant selling still fewer systems just because of the size of the markets. Then there were another 30,000 systems sold of one of the leading Atari clone systems. The Intellivision only sold about 10,000 units, and then there were a few other gray market systems that sold a few units as well. The Splice Vision was really kind of buried. To give these numbers, Alex is saying some context, the population of Brazil in 84 was roughly 132 million. There you go. You're talking about 50 to 100,000 units sold when you have a population level of 132 million. Your penetration value as far as the amount of people actually buying a console, relatively speaking, it's almost unheard of. It's a pretty small percentage of the overall population. But in terms of the consumer that has earning power, it is a very solid portion of the population, and it is definitely seen as the hottest item in both Christmas 83 and Christmas 84. After 84, the market cools off a bit. There's not a crash like you had a crash in the United States, but you did have a similar transition to home computers. Those that could afford them started moving towards some of the computers that were available. Again, a lot of gray market stuff, a lot of pirated stuff kind of left the video game market behind. By 1989, the market was largely played out. The Atari system was still in production. It was not discontinued in Brazil until 1992. The Splice Vision, the Coleco clone, was discontinued in 1985. I mean, that's when Coleco itself discontinued the system in the United States. But the company continued to offer technical support on the system through 1989. Some of the other Atari gray market clones continued to be sold into the late 80s and early 90s as well. None of this stuff went away, but it really fell by the wayside compared to computer product. That brings us finally to our star of the show and kind of the revitalization again of this console industry in Brazil, the company TechToy. TechToy was established in September of 1987. It was established by a gentleman by the name of Daniel Descal. Again, sorry if I'm mispronouncing, but it's D-A-Z-C-A-L. Descal had been at Sharp for many years. Sharp Brazil, which, as I said, was this started by an entrepreneur locally, just totally ripping off the Sharp name, but then over time became partnered with Sharp and became official in that capacity. He was lured away by two brothers, Leo and Abe Chris, who owned a television manufacturer called Evadine that manufactured Mitsubishi brand televisions locally. I'm not sure if they were authorized or not, but I think they were probably authorized. But again, Mitsubishi couldn't just open up its own factory in Brazil because by 1987 you have this law, there has to be a local company. Descal left Sharp in the spring of 1987 to go out on his own. He had a lot of experience in electronics. He started a company that was essentially a contractor called Elsis, clearly short for electronic systems, that would develop electronic parts and electronic solutions for existing companies. For instance, he was very involved in the appliance business. He developed an ASIC for Whirlpool Brazil for one of their washing machines. He was doing this kind of work. And then he kind of noticed that in the toy industry, 
there was an opening to get involved with electronic toys, which could include video games, but wouldn't necessarily include video games. So that's when he established in September 1987 Tech Toy. They weren't founded specifically to be a video game company so much as they were founded to be an electronic toy company, which at this point meant all sorts of things that were not just video games. So over the next couple of years, they start developing a series of electronic toys backed by very heavy TV advertising. I think with the Chris brothers being involved in this, they had the capability to put some marketing muscle behind things because they were already in this Mitsubishi television business, which was very successful. Slowly but surely, the market became acclimated to the idea of doing electronic games. In addition to Des Call, one of the key people at TechToy, and who is still now the CEO of TechToy to this day, was a marketer by the name of Stefano Arnold, who was brought on board in December 1987, just two months after the company was founded, in order to head up marketing at the company. Arnold had a long history, not just on electronics, but actually had a long history with video game product as well. He had started out actually in an uncle's camera business. Cameras are something that in this time period were, like so many other electronic products, something that was dominated by the Japanese. So Arnold and his uncle had a good deal of contact with Japanese companies, with Japanese technology. They came across the Game & Watch, the Nintendo Game & Watch, very soon after it was released in Japan. Arnold was very impressed by the Game & Watch, and he and his uncle actually entered into negotiations with Nintendo to bring the Game & Watch over to Brazil. These negotiations ultimately broke down. The company in question that he was part of was a very reputable company, very solid company in Brazil, but because of the economic situation in Brazil, Nintendo refused to do a deal for the system unless it was backed by letters of credit. At least the way Arnold tells it, this was kind of considered a bit of an affront and a bit of a, we shouldn't have to do this. We're not some fly-by-night that you have to worry is going to vanish tomorrow. Why are you treating us like this? Nintendo was like, well, you know, we're treating you like this because we don't trust you, and if you don't like it, goodbye, we don't need you. They end up not making the deal. The Game & Watch never comes out in Brazil. I don't know if there was some gray market weirdness, but Nintendo never found another partner to bring the Game & Watch over either. This got Arnold studying that market and studying the potential of electronic games in Brazil because he was thinking of entering that market himself. This attracted Sharp to him when Sharp was looking to bring the Intellivision over in 1983. Arnold leaves his uncle's company and goes to Sharp, where Descal is as well, in 1983, and he becomes kind of one of their main marketing gurus on this whole video game thing. So when Descal decides that he is definitely going to focus tech toy on some of this stuff, he invites, even though he didn't invite him to join right when he left, he invites him to join a couple of months later, and Arnold comes in and joins in December 1987, as I said. Because he had been looking at what was going on, particularly in Japan, around the time that he was fiddling with this whole Game & Watch thing, Call has contacts in Japan and knows some of the video game people there. And he knows people at Sega. They make contact with Sega to see if they can come to an agreement on introducing some product together. They don't start them with the video game system. They start them with a product called Zillion, which was a toy gun game, I think a little similar to Laser Tag. Zillion was an anime, so they had that license, but it was kind of a Laser Tag clone that Sega did. So in April 1988, they introduced Zillion into Brazil. It does pretty well. Again, we have to remember that the market isn't huge. It's still not huge, even though a few more years have passed. In the context of what you can reasonably expect to do in the Brazilian market, Zillion was a very, very successful toy. In fact, it actually, according to Arnold at least, outsold Zillion in Japan because Zillion was kind of a bust in Japan. It was not a hit. So they actually sold more units in Brazil 
than Sega did in Japan. And I think part of that is that they didn't have as much competition by all sorts of other fun electronic toys. But another part of that is that they did have good, solid financial backing. They were able to do lots of advertising, which wasn't necessarily easy for every company to do in Brazil. They also were able to put up a factory in the Manaus Free Trade Zone, which was a special zone set up around the city of Manaus in the Amazonia state of the country, where you were exempt from a lot of taxes and duties because they were trying to develop industry in Brazil. They had set this up in 1967, the the military government. So they had a factory there that could do a good job. They were able to blanket with advertising, and they knew the market. They understood the market because they were veterans of this whole electronics thing. Zillion actually outsold (laughs) Sega's efforts in Japan. After they had that absolute, complete success, Sega allowed them to do the Master System. This was not easy because Sega had by this point already made a deal in the United States, as we've talked about before, with Tonka to be the distributor of the Master System in the U.S. They actually stopped their direct selling of the system through Sega of America and went through Tonka. That did not go well. Nobody was happy with that arrangement. I mean, I don't think there's much Tonka could have done against the Nintendo juggernaut for a variety of reasons anyway. But the fact of the matter is that the Sega-Tonka relationship did not go well. So they were kind of hesitant to partner with another company. Of course, if they were going to introduce in Brazil, they had no choice but to partner with another company, as we've already discussed. But they didn't necessarily see the point in being in Brazil, because it is still a relatively small market. Plus, there was competition. It's like, okay, Tech Toy, maybe you guys have some experience. Maybe you individuals have some experience. But your company is new. There were these other companies like Gradiente, which had such great success with the Atari VCS. These guys clearly know video games. If we are going to partner with someone here, should it be you? I think that's part of the reason why they had to do Zillion first, because that showed that they knew how to market a product. That showed they could be successful with a Sega product. It certainly gets into that Japanese mindset of, you take care of me, I will take care of you. If you can prove that you are capable of doing what I request, therefore you will be good at doing what I request you to do in the future. Exactly. Plus, they did have the advantage that even though Tectoy itself was a new company, their parent company, Evadine, had been manufacturing televisions for quite some time and had a very good factory operation already in place. So they were able to give a tour of the factory to some of the Sega people and show them, look, this is good stuff. We do better than some of the Hong Kong and Taiwan clone companies. We have high-quality manufacturing. We're going to be 100% committed to your product because we're a small company and you're going to be our main customer. We can devote all our resources to you. We've been in this business before as individuals, even if not as a company. We can put strong television advertising behind it, and look what we did with Zillion. When you put all of those things together, Sega finally was like, okay, we're going to let you do this. In September 1989, they released the Master System in Brazil, Tectoy did. They marketed it aggressively. They made sure to localize documentation competently. They had a high-quality manufacturing operation to push this thing out. They adopted some really strong strategies to grow the brand outside of just, look, we have this system. They started a Sega Club. They did discounts. They did promotions. They did competitions, you know, local championships, that kind of thing. And Sega Club wasn't just for games. You see, the thing that really made it part of the fabric of society is that they didn't just apply it to Sega product. They would actually do discount campaigns with retailers for school supplies, for instance. They would provide club members sneak previews to movies, movies that had nothing to do with Sega or with Tech Toy or with anything. They would get them discounts to go to Formula One events, Formula One being somewhat popular in Brazil at the time, racing. The Sega Club wasn't just like, say, the Nintendo Fun Club, where it's like, hey, you like Nintendo products, right? Join the Nintendo Fun Club and you'll get our newsletter and a t-shirt or whatever. I mean, they did that kind of thing too, 
but they were like, and look at all this cool other stuff you can get. That built some brand loyalty right there. (laughs) They also made sure that they weren't just advertising on television, but they were partnering with television companies, with broadcasters as well. They actually did a tiny little program that they called Master Dicas, and then later renamed to Sega Dicas once they had more product than just the Master System. Where at the end of every afternoon, at the end of like the children's programming block every afternoon, you know, the after school block, they would do just one minute of hints and tips about Sega games. Again, you're building this into the fabric of children's lives. You're making Sega something that they're seeing and hearing about and interacting with outside of just playing video games. With their advertising, they actually used LA ad agencies to make their commercials. They didn't just try to get some locals together and do whatever. They went to top advertising agencies in the United States to produce their commercials and whatnot as well. So that was of high quality. The manufacturing was of high quality. The localization was of high quality. Because of all of this, even though the Nintendo system eventually came in, I'm not sure if it was ever official or if it was one of these gray market things. I don't know because I don't know as much about the Brazilian market. But Gradiente, the same company that did the Atari, got in with the Nintendo stuff and they released the Nintendo stuff. But they didn't have all of this great support going for it, all of these great promotions, all of these great clubs and all this infrastructure. They were never as successful. The Master System just did better. So, of course, they do release the Genesis as well. By 1989, the Genesis is already coming out in the United States. It's already been out in Japan. Of course, they released the Master System first. It's 8-bit. It's older technology. It's cheaper. That's better for the market. But in 1990, they introduced the Mega Drive, which is what we would call the Genesis in North America, but everywhere else it was the Mega Drive. So in 1990, they released the Mega Drive as well. The Genesis does okay as well, though it is a more expensive system. They find that it's really smart to kind of keep that Master System market going because the Master System is cheaper, it's more feasible, and affordable as something for people to use. The Genesis starts taking over sales a little bit from the Master System, but not to the extent that they think it's necessarily viable long-term. So in 1994, they refresh the Master System market by releasing something that they call the Super Compact, which is a wireless, battery-operated version of the Master System that is more compact. I mean, that's where it gets the name Super Compact. They even create a version of this in pink designed to attract more girls into the market. They also start licensing local shows and even occasionally making some of their own games, even hiring their own programmers and making some of their own games. They license a popular cartoon character called Monica and create a game for the Master System Compact starring this character. They learn through their research that Woody Woodpecker is one of the more popular cartoon characters in Brazil. So they end up creating a Woody Woodpecker game just for the Brazilian market because that's so successful. They take games and actually change graphics and whatnot as they localize them to tie them into local properties, local Brazilian properties that are popular. They even manage to conclude licenses for games that are never officially released on the Master System, created for the Master System, or released anywhere else in the world on the Master System. One example of this being Street Fighter II, which actually has a Master System version in Brazil. They just felt that that system was more viable long-term than the Genesis because it was cheaper. They would take Game Gear games, because the Game Gear is basically a Master System in terms of its internals. So they would take Game Gear games and convert them with minimal effort to Master System games to help prolong the life of that console, in addition to doing things like Street Fighter II. I can only imagine the Street Fighter II Turbo Edition for the (laughs) 8-bit. Right. They're bringing in games from outside and changing them up in localization. They're converting games to the Master System that are available nowhere else for the Master System, like Street Fighter II. And for the Genesis, they actually do a Duke Nukem 3D for the Genesis, for the Mega Drive, another example of that. They even create their own games in-house 
like this Woody Woodpecker game that they made because he was just a really popular character in this period of time in Brazil. I mean, a character that American school children were still perhaps vaguely familiar with, but I mean, his popularity had long since been past its peak. But in Brazil, he was super popular. By doing these things, by putting this special touch on their product, by getting the children involved with these marketing initiatives like the Sega Club, they were able to operate in a market that was often beset by piracy and gray market games and have a huge amount of success with a legitimate, fully authorized, licensed product. Really, just about the only time that a company experienced this level of success in Brazil doing traditional console games. By 1996, they had sold 2 million Sega systems. Master System, Mega Drive, and just a teensy-weensy little bit of Saturn, because by then they had also introduced the Saturn. 2 million systems. Now, it took them from 1989 to 1996 to reach those 2 million systems. When you consider that success in that market is so often measured in the hundreds of thousands, 2 million systems is pretty darn impressive in that climate. It almost makes me wonder if they have that degree of marketing savvy going on in Brazil, why a similar approach wasn't brought to other world markets or the other world markets wouldn't have looked at what's going on in Brazil and say, you know, shutting them the Sega Club's a good thing, giving away prizes that aren't just video game related or just thinly veiled marketing ploys seem to really generate goodwill. Maybe we should do that here, especially if I want to beat the pants off Nintendo. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many of these lessons would have necessarily been applicable elsewhere. They were in a unique position where they didn't have to fight Nintendo head-on, right? Nintendo couldn't bring all of its muscle into this market. They couldn't bring all of its monopoly into this market, right? A lot of what made the Nintendo system desirable is that they had the exclusive licenses on a lot of the hottest games. Then they could pressure retailers to really push their product because of their kind of monopoly in the market. But they really couldn't do any of that in Brazil because in Brazil, they can't even get in. They have to have a local partner. So there goes a lot of that influence. And there's so much gray market stuff going on that just having everything tied up wasn't necessarily going to be enough. I think Tectoy, they were just really good at building brand loyalty in a way that a lot of startups wouldn't be able to accomplish. But they were already longtime veterans in the electronics business in the country. And I think that really helped them out. But yeah, I mean, clearly these are tactics that work to kind of go up against Nintendo when Nintendo kind of has one arm tied behind its back. You would arguably think that a gray market situation like there is in Brazil is a more hostile economic system to try and do a consumer entertainment product in. While in the United States and other more developed countries, where things are very regulated, arguably easier in a way. It's kind of an mm-hmm. interesting dichotomy. Is like in a more every man for themselves gray market, intellectual property is very loose. Sega wins if maybe because Tech Toy is able to bring this great marketing to bear, but in a more regulated, by the books economy. Nintendo dominates, and that's just a weird dichotomy to sort of see. You'd expect one or the other would dominate in both fields. More hostile environment of Brazil for putting out a game console would mean that Sega should have more dominance elsewhere. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that Nintendo and Nintendo's partners really couldn't get in there with those games in the same way that they could in other places. Nintendo's games could do the talking in a lot of places. Here, I don't think they could. And I also think it has to do with the fact that Tectoy understood their local market, so they would make a Woody Woodpecker game locally. They did the same thing with so many other products. That Monica game that I told you about, they took Wonder Boy and turned it into the Monica game because that would be something that would have more resonance. They took the Asterisk game, Asterix is a hugely popular comic book character in Europe, but in Brazil, it's like whatever. 
So they just took that and they completely redid that game based on a Brazilian TV show. So, yeah, it's a combination of just understanding their market very well and not having that 900-pound gorilla of Nintendo breathing down their neck because Sega could never really escape that. I mean, in the U.S., they were able to use marketing to get ahead of Nintendo for a time, though, as we talked about, it was very costly for them. In Japan, they just could never break that hold. But in Brazil, where the stakes were a little lower, admittedly, By partnering with a company that was already established, they could make it work. By 1992, Tech Toy is the largest toy company in Brazil. They're doing ad campaigns of $10 million a pop, which is good in any part of the world, Hearst World or otherwise. They were doing so well that Sega actually gave them the distribution in Argentina and Uruguay as well to reach even more of the market. Daniel Discall passes away that year, in 1992. He was only 42. He died young. That's when Arnold took over the company and has been in charge ever since. Like I said, the company still operates today. This is kind of outside of the wheelhouse of just us talking about Tech Toy and its role with Sega, but the company even eventually creates the first console that was ever created by a Brazilian company, like original console, not something that they were manufacturing for someone else. I don't know if you remember Zebo at all. No, I do not. It was made in the United States, but it wasn't really meant for the U.S. market. It was really meant as a cheaper console for countries of the developing world. It wasn't very successful, but it was actually started by some tech toy people's Eventually, they expanded out of Sega. They did PC games. They did mobile games. One of their executives, Reynaldo Normand, actually came to the U.S. and founded a American division of Tech Toy in 2007. He met up with a guy at Qualcomm in San Diego, where Tech Toy America was as well, who was kind of working on something similar, and they partnered to introduce this Zebo system. Tech Toy America was renamed Zebo Inc., so technically Zebo was the company releasing the Zebo but it had ties to Tech Toy. That's how pervasive Tech Toy had become. As I said, they continue to release Master System variants because it has been so popular. They continued releasing Mega Drive variants well into the 2000s. Just to give you an idea, I told you that by 1996, they had sold 2 million total systems. By 2015... They had sold over 5 million Master Systems. This is original consoles plus later emulated stuff. Over 3 million Mega Drives. Approximately 62 million units of software. The reason that number is so high and why it seems so out of proportion to the consoles they sold is that when Arnold gives that figure, he's counting all the built-in games they sold. So, I mean, they started selling Master Systems and Mega Drives with dozens upon dozens of games built into them. If you bought a Master System, you were also buying like 50 games. So that's why you have that gigantic 62 million number. But still, by 2015, selling 8 million consoles in a market that it's hard to sell any hardware in in massive numbers. They kept it relevant because they slimmed it down, they reduced components, they did emulation, they did bundles where, you know, there would be preloaded, like I said, dozens of games on the system. So they kept it relevant as something that was cheap and fun. They were never trying to present video games as like the cutting edge, the be all and end all. They knew what their market was. Their market was a market where people didn't have as much money, but they still wanted to have fun with these kind of games. And so they kept going. They released games like Street Fighter 2 on Master System or Duke Nukem 3D on Mega Drive, and they just kept it going, and they still keep it going today. And, you know, they're never going to sell 150 million systems like Sony did of the PlayStation 2 worldwide. They've got their niche, and it's been very successful for them, and it's been kind of a success story for the Sega hardware brand. You can't get Sega product hardly anywhere else in the world. You know, they did their own Genesis version of the NES Classic. I mean, you can get, like, some of those plug-and-play emulated systems, but the Sega brand doesn't really mean hardware anymore, except in Brazil, and that's Tech Toy. Sounds to me like we need to hire Tech Toy to do a marketing campaign for various things. Because they obviously know what they're doing. They know their market, that's for sure. 
As we prepare to go back on a boat to get to the United States, what will we be discussing on our trip? Keeping on this theme of covering developments in a country over a period of time, I'd like to do something a little different than what we've done before, even though it's going to touch on a lot of the same material, and talk about what the U.S. programmable market really looked like in the period between the launch of the first cartridge systems in 1976 and the crash in 82-83. We're not going to cover the crash again. We know. We've done it. We're aware. It's okay. We've talked about this is what Atari did with the VCS. This is what Mattel Electronics did. This is what Coleco did. But we haven't really pulled that all together and actually explored, okay, this is how the American market developed, the North American market. These were the games that made it big. This is how it expanded. Let's pull together all of these individual things that we've done and tell a more holistic story of the 1976 to 1982 period in that console market. While some of the individual facts and anecdotes will be repeat if you've been following along for a long time, this will allow us to stitch this together in a way that we probably haven't done before. We will take a look at all the consoles together next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Alex's book, They Create World, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. And yes, I do have plenty of stickers left. If you want one, or some, or more, just email jeffrey at theycreateworlds.com. 